Our first reading this evening is Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He's faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army, No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. The second reading is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Please keep that uh, passage open. I'm taking it we've prayed already as we sang that song, praying for the Holy Spirit to work amongst us. So I think we can get on the way straight away. One of the things that um, where being a Christian today is not a good fit with today's culture is this. Um, following Jesus is not just a hobby. And the sort of hobby industry is alive and well in our, our world. Um, the leisure industry, you could call it if you want a slightly more technical phrase. It's actually a comparatively new industry in our Western world. Um, if you judge it by, for example, the magazine racks in stores, uh, only 50 years ago, if you went into a, a newsagent, the selection of magazines was not huge. Now, of course, there are numerous publications to update every leisure interest going. A whole aisle in the supermarket 
with big choices available, even on pretty obscure topics like men's health. So a whole industry has sprung up around how we spend our disposable income. And the result is that people have hobbies and interests that catch our enthusiasm for a while, and then they're just forgotten when the next novelty pursuit comes along. And into that situation, I think we easily think of the Christian faith as another one of the same range of leisure pursuits. Hence, some um, people will be interested. Well, why not have a dabble in that one, we might think. But with no guarantee that we'll stick at it. And I'm sure that when I began to follow Christ at the age of 16, most of my family assumed it would be a sort of teenage fad and I would drop it quickly. And churches today struggle for committed membership. Even in Bible-believing churches, there's a considerable fringe of once or twice a month attenders. Just in case that's you, let me say you're very welcome. But actually, genuine Christianity is not about coming for a sort of petrol pump refill every 350 miles. It is a 24-7 activity. Or rather, it is a relationship. And you're in that relationship all the time, and over the long haul. Now, we left Hebrews last Sunday with a strong, positive encouragement for the readers to keep going as Christians, and negatively a warning not to follow the example of disobedience and unbelief of that generation, remember, who'd come out of Egypt with Moses and then died in the wilderness under God's judgment. They rejected the word of God. They didn't trust it or obey it. And they therefore lost their rest. So, says our writer, don't be like them. Don't miss out on the rest that God can give. Keep believing and obeying God's word. That was last week. Now he moves on to the motivation that they and all of us will need to do that. Why should we give following Jesus top place and make it an ongoing priority to trust him and obey him? for the rest of our lives. Well, we've got two reasons to keep going in our verse. Uh, They correspond to the two verses. I think it'll be quite useful. We've got verse 12 up on the the board at the moment. First one is God speaks, and then verse 13 we'll see God sees. But God speaks to start with, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active. So here is why to keep going as a believer, not just on a a fad or a hobby or a leisure interest. Reason number one, God speaks. God is speaking his word to us. You ask which word? Well, presumably it's referring to the word of promise. And I think Nicholas helpfully pointed us to that earlier on in the uh, the chapter as we started the service. God with great love and tenderness saying to his people, look, there's a rest of perfect friendship with me. Take me up on it. And today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So God says, if you do embrace what I'm offering you, you'll find rest for your souls. And if you don't, then I swear on oath, you will never enter my rest. That's the word that God speaks. He speaks, and really he's asking us, which is it going to be, rest or wrath? And that word comes to us today. And every day. So the tense is important. God speaks, present tense, which has been the point that the writer's made in the chapter all the way along. Remember, he quoted Psalm 95 Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
And therefore God addresses us not once and for all when we start the Christian life. He addresses us in his word today. There was a married couple where the wife was craving some reassurance that her husband still loved her. And in the end, he told her it straight. Look, he said, I told you I loved you in my wedding vows on the day I married you. And if there's any change, I'll tell you. You'll be the first to know. And that slightly begs the question if there really is an ongoing relationship between them. God's word doesn't only address us the first time we hear God's word, the first time we hear a sermon on a given passage of the Bible, for example. And then once we got that Bible passage in our memory bank, it's done its work. It's not just a matter of getting the info on file, if you like. There's actually got to be an existential engagement with God in his word. He's speaking to me day by day. He's speaking to us now, today. And I wonder if that was your expectation as you rocked up to church this evening or opened your Bible on your own this morning. I'm listening to Almighty God. His word is alive and active. Apparently, the Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon used to gather a crowd for an open-air sermon by putting a hat down on the ground. And as if there was some small animal underneath the hat, he'd point with a quivering finger down at the hat and say, it's alive, it's alive. And of course, um, pre-TV, a crowd would gather to see what the big excitement was, um, what's underneath. Then he'd pick up the hat, and underneath there would be a Bible. And he'd hold it up aloft and say, it's alive, it's alive, and begin to preach from the Bible. Well, God's Word is not just a historical document for those who like old texts and the stuff they talk about. Of course, the yesterday element is there in the Bible. It is talking about events that happened a long time ago in former years. But God's Word is more than just a record of past events. It's not just addressed to us in the past. God is speaking to us us all today. His word is alive, and furthermore, it's also active. So that's saying this, surely, the word is how he works in the world today. In other words, it's how he gets things done. And you think about it, it's always been that way. Helpful to have Psalm 33 read, because when God made the world, how did he do it? Well, six times, if you look in Genesis 1, it's the same. And God said... Let there be light, and it was so. Or let the dry land be separated from the sea, and it was so. Or let us make man in our own image, and it was so. So you get six sermons from the pulpit of heaven, which got the job done and created a universe. So that's a powerful word. And having made the world through his word, it's actually how he runs the world. You think about that famous passage in Isaiah 55, which people often quote, where God says that in exactly the same way that the rain and the snow water the world and produce plant life and crops, his word, when he speaks, won't return to him empty or without effect or void. His word does what he plans in his world. If he has a plan and makes a promise, then 
He's given his word and he will then give his word again to bring that plan to pass in his world. His word is how he acts in the world. And it's how he acts, therefore, in our lives. And that's surely the point he's making in Hebrews chapter 4. But I wonder if we really believe that God's word is powerful like that. The same power by which he runs the world operates through the word of his promise, the gospel, in us. I know what we're doing on Sundays doesn't always seem very impressive. But when God promises to get his people home to heaven, to rest, that word is mighty. And it changes everything in the lives of those who believe it and act on it. Now, of course, that is not always comfortable, as verse 12 continues. At the start of it there, for the word of God is alive and active. We've thought about that. But here's the uh, uncomfortable bit. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, there is scope there for plenty of discussion as to what the dividing line is between soul and spirit, or the heart, uh, later on in the verse, or between joints and marrow. But I guess the point of that one is exactly to emphasize that there isn't any space between joints and marrow, or there shouldn't be. Doctors have got to be nice to me at this point because I'm pretty ignorant about this, but surely the point is that the marrow is supposed to fill any vacant space there might be. And the word of God is able to get in between that non-existent gap. So don't let's get too hung up on the shades of meaning between the things it can slice apart there, word and spirit, I'm sorry, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The point is surely that the word of God, when it comes into us, it gets right under the surface. It penetrates very deep. It's like a sword that can get through tough, hard layers. And what does it find when it gets there? Well, it, it makes judgments. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I think the word judge in verse 12 there, to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, doesn't mean condemning as such. It means assessing and discerning, sort of uncovering. When we show somebody a, a painting and say, what's your judgment of this painting? We mean, what's your assessment of the quality? Is it good or bad, this painting? And the word of God, it penetrates the deepest places in our lives and it assesses and critiques and judges what's there. Is it good or bad? I wonder if that's your experience of the word of God. That gets right under the surface of our lives. We know God is speaking to us and he sees the stuff we don't even know ourselves and he puts our sin to the sword. Is that our experience of God's word? Well, Hebrews 4 is saying it should be, even if it's not always comfortable that. Now, ponder it a bit more with me. If that is not our experience, then you've got to wonder whether we've really allowed the Bible to act as it should be acting in our lives. I suppose it could mean that there really isn't much sin in our lives for God to need to do surgery on us. But I doubt that is true of me. And I'm afraid I slightly doubt it's true of you as well. So I'm going to say something which might appear to be shocking. If we fall short of the Bible getting right under the surface of our lives, and uncomfortably at times, maybe we aren't as biblical as we think we are. 
You probably need a joke. I've got one spare to bring in at this point. There's a story I like about um, an American police officer sitting on the side of the highway waiting to catch speeding drivers. And he sees a car puttering along at 22 miles an hour. And he thinks to himself, well, that driver's just as dangerous as a speeder would be. So he puts the light on and pulls the driver over. Anyway, approaching the car, he notices that there are five old ladies in the car, two in the front and three in the back. And they're wide-eyed and white as ghosts. Well, the driver's obviously confused and says to him, Officer, I don't understand. I was doing exactly the speed limit. What seems to be the problem? Ma'am, the officer replies, you weren't speeding. But you need to know that driving slower than the speed limit can also be a danger to other drivers. Slower than the speed limit, she asked. She's very puzzled. I thought I was going exactly 22 miles per hour. At this point, the officer is trying to contain a chuckle and explains to her that 22 was the highway number, not the speed limit. Well, she's a bit embarrassed at that point, but she thanks him for pointing out her error. Anyway, before I let you go, ma'am, I have to ask, is everybody okay in this car? asks the policeman. These women seem a bit shaken. They haven't muttered a single peep since, the, since I pulled you over this whole time. Oh, they'll be all right in a minute, officer, said the driver. We just got off Highway 119. <laughs> it's a slightly gratuitous joke, but I thought you needed a bit of humour. This is summer evenings, it's hard, isn't it? There is a, a minimalist view of the Bible that says we just read it as a law to be obeyed and obeyed to the letter. So, 22, 119. We'll take a command and we'll have a very... Straight up, literalistic viewers, if that is the only thing God could be saying to us through it. And we might feel like we're respecting the Bible's standards, but it is possible to miss the real force of the Bible and for it not to be operating as it should be in our lives, to deal with our sin and to get us to heaven. A nodding acquaintance with the Bible is not what I need, it's not what you need. God's Word has got to deal with the hidden depths of my personality, the soul and the spirit. Because actually sin runs really deep in us. And there's something very baffling about our sin, which means we can't always fully fathom the tangled web of self-deceit in our lives. Um, my faults are often hidden to me. And that's because they're so frequent. And I've lived with them for 54 years now. So they become our sort of moral blind spots. And we don't notice them. We're the sum of all our yesterdays. All of us are. And when we act or speak in a sinful pattern over a long time, and apparently successfully we get away with it, actually even with the Bible confronting those patterns of behavior, sometimes we just can't see it as sin. It's simply too much a part of us. We need the Spirit to open our eyes to what we're really like. And he'll use the Bible to do that for us. I know not all of us are married here but I hope it's okay for me to speak as a married person. By definition, marriage is the joining of two sinful people together. And I think it's okay for me to say this without Susu present. But because you're close to each other and there's no escaping, if we're living in reality, rather than just playing let's pretend with each other, it can often be really humbling to actually have some of your stuff seen by somebody else which you haven't even necessarily seen yourself. 
can be very humbling. Um, I will spot things in my wife that she hasn't noticed. She will certainly spot things in my life that I'm blissfully unaware of. And in that situation, it will be easy, in one sense, to spot my spouse's fault and long for, for her to do something about them, which is almost always unhelpful. I can't change them, so I shouldn't really try. The one person I can begin to change with God's help is myself. And I need my hidden debts and my blind spots exposed for that to happen, which is God's speciality through his word. I mean, it may be mediated to me by my wife, but it'll be particularly if it's accurate as the Bible gets to work on me. Susie said, give him a couple of examples. (laughs) Well, an example of where I got convicted. Here's a Bible verse. This is sort of root number 22 or root number 199. I knew this Bible verse, Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. And it's quite recently in our marriage that um, I, I got overextended financially. And we had to have a heart-to-heart and say, I'd been spending too much, or we'd been spending too much. It wasn't as if I was running off and spending it all on myself. But almost, I mean, we sorted it all out. But the, the really significant thing was the second half of that verse. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. And the money issue was affecting the way we treated each other the sort of levels of secrecy in the marriage, things like that. So that was a verse that actually got to work on us. Um, I'd known the verse for a long time, but God spoke it today afresh, as it were, and it did its work. And one of the very first Bible, this is a, 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 a sort of more of a cheering story, uh, by way of comfort. One of the first Bible verses I learned was Hebrews 13, verse 5. God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And there was a point, this is actually before I was married, where that verse really came powerfully home to me. I'd been pretty ill. I'd had to be sort of stepped back from the, uh, the work in the church where I was working at the time. Um, had about a sort of term off, really, to recover from operations and things. And when you're relying on Christian work, for your Christian life, easy trap to fall into if you're in Christian work, uh, suddenly all the props got knocked, uh, knocked away from me, as it were. And I remember singing a song at the back of St. Andrew the Great Church, and it was a full church, you know, five or six hundred people in there. It was as if it was me and God, and Hebrews 13.5 coming home to me afresh, just reminding me that actually it didn't really matter too much whether I ever preached again, whether I ever talk to people about their Christian lives. Uh, I was loved and accepted by him. He would never fail me nor forsake me. Um, I'd relied on my Christian work for far too long to be the sense of assurance that I had in, in my relationship with God. That was actually great to just set things back afresh on course. But God's word does get under our skin and help us if we'll only allow it to. And he longs to free us and to give us real rest. And he can be trusted. So, rather longer on the first one. God speaks. He's doing it tonight. And without that speaking, our sin will never be challenged. But with that word at work in our lives, 
the liberation really can happen. Today, if you hear his voice, don't put up the shutters. Don't harden your heart. God speaks. And then much more briefly, God sees. Verse 30, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that, of course, is why God's word can go so deep, because it's God's word, and he sees everything. And no one else does, not accurately. Elizabeth I is supposed to have said, we make not windows into men's souls. And she meant by that, there's no way that she could tell what was going on under the surface in people's hearts. That deeper level is hidden from us, but it's not hidden from God, of course. Never mind other people, says Hebrews. Our hidden debts are not hidden from him. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes. And, of course, we don't give account to anyone but him. He's the one to whom we must give account, not the bishop, not the vicar, not our TNG leader, not our youth leader from camp, not our spiritually respected mentor, We must not make them into God or they will let us down. Not popular opinion, not the Today program, not even ourselves. The Apostle Paul learned that lesson. He was endlessly judged by others and he could easily have beaten himself up, but he didn't. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 verses 3 to 4 is another verse that I sometimes have to cling to. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He alone's got the facts, you see. He alone judges properly. And therefore, only his word can safely do the necessary surgery on us before that judgment day. But you see the seriousness of these verses. I wanted to just, just to have two verses to look at tonight, since we just take them perhaps more sort of seriously, and allow them to do their work. Whether we like it or not, all of us here are moving towards our eternal destiny, rest or wrath. We will all give account to him. And of course, the relevance of Jesus as the only way to be ready for judgment is all the more obvious. Either we give account of our lives to God ourselves, or we invite Jesus to do it for us. How wonderful that our sin isn't just forgotten about, it's taken seriously. Jesus gave account of our sin as he died on the cross for us. Thank God he died for your sins, your hidden sins, your open sins. And what he offers is not just, therefore, another leisure option for an already crowded life. He can give the hope that we all desperately need in advance of judgment. So try and hold those two together, will you? God speaks and God sees. His word is what prepares me to meet him as my judge. And for us, for all practical purposes, his word means the Bible. I want to invite you to read your Bible. If you've got out of the habit of doing so, get back into the habit. 
and to pray for him that it wouldn't just be a dead letter, that he would speak his today word, his living word afresh to you. I'm going to end with a lovely quotation from John Wesley. He said this, I am a creature of a day. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. Amen.